Amos chapter 8, if you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and be finding your place there. We've been in a study of this book for quite some time, uh, at least the end of May, and our time with Amos is soon coming to a close. Only have one or two more messages that I want to preach as we'll finish up our study of this book. But throughout our study, we've seen how Amos shows us that God is much more concerned with how people treat one another than he is with our affluent lives, form religion, all of which were characteristic of Israel in Amos's day. But it was also very hollow. And there was no true justice, no true righteousness. All of that had been lost to society. Israel had become prosperous and also hypocritical. And so God sent the prophet Amos into the northern kingdom of Israel with a sobering message. There's a quote that's attributed to Martin Luther, and whether it's true or not, whether it's a true Luther quote, I'm not sure, but the quote's been around forever. But it goes something like this, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the Word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. Now you apply that quote to what we've seen Amos do now for seven full chapters We've seen him on the front lines. He's been unflinching in the battle for truth. He wasn't popular. He didn't win many friends to himself by going up against the establishment of a corrupt society. He even gained some powerful enemies. And we saw an exchange that he had with uh, the priest at Bethel there at the close of chapter 7. We looked at that last week. Uh, and this priest at Bethel was really the king's puppet who was the chief proponent of a false religious system there in Israel and Amos cries out against it and that leads to this direct confrontation with Amaziah. And so the last part of the book, really chapter 7 through chapter 9, contains a series of five visions that God gives to the prophet. The first three visions are there in the first part of chapter 7. The last two are given in chapters 8 and chapters 9, respectively. And so a fourth vision, which we'll consider this morning, is found here in chapter 8. And it's the vision of a basket that was full of summer fruit. Now, one thing to keep in mind as we consider these visions that were given to Amos each of these visions illustrate the nature of God's judgment on a sinful nation. So, in the first three chapters of the book, Amos is declaring oracles against the nations that were in rebellion to God's revealed will and His Word. There are specific messages in the middle part of the book that Amos directs toward Israel but these visions at the end of the book sort of illustrate the judgment of God on a sinful nation. Through the prophet, God had sufficiently warned his people that judgment was coming due to their refusal to repent 
and to seek His righteousness. And so really these visions show just how serious their sin was in the eyes of God. Those first three visions, if you go back to chapter 7, the first nine verses, uh, it involved the plague of locust. God showed the prophet a plague of locust, and the locusts were devouring the latter crop. And Amos prays and says, Lord, let it not be. And the Bible says God relented. The second vision was that of a consuming fire that was devouring the land. And Amos cries out in prayer and says, God, let it not be. And God relents. The third vision was a plumb line that God had set up in the midst of his people, showing just how off the wall of Israel was. It wasn't true to plumb. The plumb line was God's law, his righteous standard. It was uh, himself and his own righteousness. So each of these are object lessons that were, were given to the prophet Amos to illustrate the seriousness of Israel's sin. And so now that we've come into this eighth chapter, you're going to notice that once more, God shows Amos an object, and this object conveys a very special lesson. And here in chapter 8, the object lesson is a basket of summer fruit. So let's read this eighth chapter together, beginning with verse number 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. And so many dead bodies they're thrown everywhere, silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Now, what we're presented with in this eighth chapter is really a picture 
of a nation that's under judgment. And so I want to speak from that subject this morning, a nation that's under judgment. That's the point that's being driven home by this basket of summer fruit, this vision that is given to the prophet. Now, I happen to love fresh fruit, and I don't know anyone who would say anything to the opposite. I mean, let's just face it, there's nothing better than a slice of cold, juicy watermelon on a hot summer day with just a little bit of salt on it. I'm one of those who actually likes to put a little bit of salt on my watermelon. Or better yet, what about a bowl full of fresh strawberries with a little bit of sugar and a whole lot of Cool Whip? Man, that makes for a really good treat on a hot summer day too. You know, fruit is a gift from God. Fruit is something to be enjoyed. Our English word fruit comes from a Latin word which means enjoyment or delight. Satisfaction, that's the idea. So the word fruit comes from the effect that it produces. So Israel here is being pictured as a basket of summer fruit. However, it's not because of the delight that they bring to God. But rather, the emphasis here is on the fact that as a nation, they were ripe for judgment. The day of opportunity for them had already come and gone. And so from this text, I'm going to point out to you a few things. Uh, You'll notice that there's a comparison here in the passage. Amos deals with some corruption as far as society is concerned. Uh, He mentions a convulsion that will be the result of God's judgment in that society and then a confusion that happens to overtake that society. And all of this illustrates a nation that's under judgment. So notice number one, there's a comparison being expressed here in these verses. And that comparison is this vision of a basket full of summer fruit as it's being compared to the nation of Israel. And so the setting for this vision was early autumn that had just followed the summer months. A basket of ripened fruit. This would have been something that Amos would have been quite familiar with. Because woven into the fabric of Israelite society, you had annual feasts. Some of which were in the springtime. Others were in the fall after the summer growing season. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16 describes the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, This very well could have been the setting for this fourth vision. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, the people would have gathered the bounty of the harvest together uh, to remember the provision of God. At least that's how the feast was intended to be. Uh, There would be token offerings from the harvest that would be brought to the place of sacrifice, uh, offered in a commemorative way as, as a thanksgiving to God. So it was a time for them as a nation to be reminded that they belonged to God as God's covenant people. They had been rescued from bondage. They had been given the law. They had been set apart by God for himself. And so you bring that background to this particular passage, and it's as though God is showing Amos the way that the people would have been bringing uh, offerings And so in this case, it's a basket of summer fruit. The harvest time had passed. This would have been the last crop of fruit that they would have had that particular season. Now, you don't see this as much in an English translation, but there's a play on words in the original Hebrew language of the text. 
God asks the prophet, what do you see? And Amos says, I see a basket of summer fruit. And so it's a sobering word here in the text. It's fruit, but it's ripe fruit. Amos, what do you see? He says, I see a a basket of ripened fruit, fruit that had matured, fruit from the end of the crop, to which the Lord then says, the end has come upon my people Israel. And so here's the play on words. In Hebrew, the words for end and summer fruit are words that sound identical. So it's as if God is showing Amos this basket of ripe fruit and and he's saying this basket of ripe fruit uh, is symbolic of my people Israel who are ripe for the judgment. And so that's what's being conveyed here with this vision of summer fruit. It's about the ripening of human character. Again, verse 2, God says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. So the prophet is drawing from nature to make this important point. You know that nature is governed by cycles. You've got growth cycles as far as planting is concerned. You've got got spring, summer, the autumn months. With these seasons come appropriate times for planting, times for growing, then times for harvesting. And it seems like that cycle is endless. We know what to expect with each passing season. However, each season is unique in its own right because there's no crop that ever carries over to another time. With each crop, there's a season, a brief season for the seed to sprout. There's a brief season for growth to occur. And there's a brief season for that fruit to be harvested. And you've got to make the most of the opportunity while the window of opportunity has opened up. So it's a gradual process then of maturing. This happens in the realm of nature. And oftentimes when you come to Scripture, you'll see this as an illustration that's used to describe the way that human character, human conduct ripens. All of us are in a ripening season, whether we realize it or not. So God is saying, here's this basket of summer fruit, but the people, they're the summer fruit. They brought that which represented the end of the season, but in reality, they themselves had come to an end of a season. They had ignored the prophet's warnings. They had refused to repent of their sins. And God is showing Amos how Israel was ripe for his judgment. There was no other option. They had come to the end of God's patience. They had crossed the line. There was only a harvest of judgment up ahead. And so that's what's being emphasized with this basket of summer fruit. It's a comparison being drawn between a ripened harvest and a nation that is ripe for judgment. You know, Isaiah 55 says... Uh, seek the Lord while he may be found. Implicit within that instruction is this idea that there will come an opportunity where that opportunity, the window closes and there is no longer opportunity. Seek God at a time in which he may be found. Call upon him when he's near. If God's dealing with you in your life over some particular issue, Don't dismiss that dealing. 
Don't turn your back. Don't resist while God's Spirit is dealing with you. And don't assume that there's going to be another opportunity or another day when God's going to be dealing with you in the same way. That's why the Scripture says, now is the time. This is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Sometimes a person will be under conviction. God's Spirit will be dealing with their heart. Perhaps drawing them to faith in Jesus Christ. And they resist. And they turn their back on that. They walk away from that particular moment of conviction. And they assume that there's going to be another opportunity. What if that opportunity does not come? So do you see how serious it is that we respond to what God is initiating, to what God is doing in our hearts as people? I think one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible is Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. It says, the harvest has passed, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. It conveys this sense of opportunity that is fleeting, opportunity that is passing. And so God is saying through Amos here that that this summer fruit is a fitting symbol for the ripening of human conduct, the ripening of human character. Which, by the way, do you realize you're never stagnant in terms of your relationship with God? You're never stationary. You're either either, uh, growing closer to Him or you're moving farther away from Him. You're never stagnant. There's always this this ripening that's happening in my life and in your life. And say, well, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to ignore my relationship with God. What is it that happens? There's a digression that happens. You, You go back to the illustration of planting and growing. You know, you don't have to sow weeds in your garden in order for weeds to grow. You know, I've tried to do a little bit of yard work. I've tried to improve our grass situation in my yard. Had some folks come out, even help me with it. It was great. But there's this maintenance that's involved with your yard. If you really want to, you can't just, you know, ignore it and leave it alone. I've got a lot of crab grass. Y'all know what crab, Bermuda grass is? The stuff that just bogs your lawnmower down. I don't have any grass in the springtime. It's all brown. But right about now, this time of year, I've got Bermuda grass like you wouldn't believe. And it bogs my mower down. But, you know, in order to have a well-manicured lawn, you've got to put in the time, energy, and effort. There's a lot of work that goes into that. It's amazing how weeds will just grow without you having to plant them as far as your garden's concerned. The garden doesn't stay the same. Either it progresses toward harvest or it will move toward uselessness. And in a lot of ways, our lives are like that. You look at what Israel had done. Israel had moved away from God. There was a digression in terms of their character. And it shows up in the way that they have contempt for God's word. They've got contempt for the message that Amos had been sent to preach. Not only do they have contempt for the message, they've got contempt for the messenger. They don't want to hear what Amos has to say. And I told you last week, Amaziah, he kind of points out that Amos is really the problem. Amos, if you just need to go back to Judah, quit making waves, quit causing trouble up here in the northern kingdom. We've got our own thing going up here, and it's going pretty good. We don't need you. And yet Amos wasn't the problem. Amos and the message that God sent him to preach was the solution. 
But the people refused to repent. They refused to receive the message. And so there's this downward movement away from God, expressing itself in an overall contempt for His Word. And so their character had been ripening, but it would be a very bitter harvest, a rotten harvest. But so, so this basket of summer fruit illustrates the ripening of human character. It also illustrates the reaping of human character. There comes a point in time when that which has ripened, it's picked. It's to be reaped. Fruit that has ripened is ready to be picked. I know some of y'all probably have made plans maybe yesterday or tomorrow, Labor Day, to visit an apple orchard somewhere up in the mountains. You know, it's, it's apple season in the mountains of North Carolina. The fruit has been ripening all summer long, and now it's ready to be picked. I lived in Hendersonville for a few years, and every Labor Day weekend, there was always the Apple Festival there. And you could go to the Apple Festival. Thousands of people came to the festival, and, and all of the, the orchards were represented, and there was apple this, apple that. Why? It was because it was the season for picking the apples. Reaping time. God's unchanging law of the harvest is this. Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It's the principle that we always reap what we sow. Later on in that passage in Galatians 6, Paul says that if we sow to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, we will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. I've heard it expressed this way, uh, sow a thought and you'll reap an action. Sow an act and you'll reap a habit. Sow a habit and you'll reap a character. Sow a character and you'll reap a destiny. That's exactly what had happened there in the northern kingdom of Israel. You look at the way that society had been broken down, how there was corruption at every level of society, how there was a thin veneer of religion that sort of whitewashed it all, and God is seeing through it. God's been dealing with His people. He's given His people opportunity to turn from their ways, to seek His face. But now the fruit had ripened and they had been picked as a nation. They just didn't know it yet. So that's the comparison here in the passage that's being expressed. Now, notice the second thing. Notice how there's corruption being exposed. There in verse number 4, once more, the prophet is dealing specifically with the sins of the nation. Uh, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. So if the what of the vision is being conveyed in verses 1, 2, and 3, now here in verse 4 through 6 is the why. Why exactly has Israel been compared to a basket of ripened fruit? Well, it's corruption that was true of their society. The needy were being exploited by the well-to-do. People were being manipulated all for the sake of profit. The nation had come to a place where it loved things more than it loved God. The marketplace was the real sanctuary. And what made it worse, they had a form of religion to cover it all and to justify their idolatry. So what you see here in verses 4 through 6, Amos is describing a society that's in the idolatrous grip of materialism. 
Uh, in their society, bottom line took precedence over compassion. That's the message there in verse number four. The needy had been trampled on. The poor of the land were being brought to an end. There was no compassion being shown for their neighbors. Verse five, greed came before God. They were asking this question, when will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain and the Sabbath that we can offer wheat for sale? The idea is we just can't wait to get out of church till we can get back to making money. I can't wait till the service is over until I can get back to what really matters to me. Material things, greed was more important than God. And then increase, this was more important than personal integrity. Notice there in the last part of verse 5, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. In other words, let's manipulate the, the system and the market in such a way that we come out on top that it ends up costing people more, but they get less in return so that we can line our own pockets. In verse 6, profit means more than people. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The chaff was the worthless part of the kernel of grain. It was, it was what the wind was to blow away. They wanted to sell it and make money off of it. So all of that's just descriptive of this materialistic society where stuff was being worshipped, where things were more important than people. And people were reduced to nothing more than mere objects. Those who were less fortunate were being taken advantage of. The nation was living for material things at the expense of spiritual truth and it's covetousness that's really at the center of their society and yet God had intended for things to be different among his people. That's why he had redeemed his people in the first place and revealed to them his law. Uh, He intended for his law uh, to form their character and to govern their society so in that way Israel would be a light to the nations. But they had broken his law. They had failed to live by his covenant. What was the express purpose of that law in revealing the character of God? In fact, think about it this way. Uh, The law of God was contained on two tablets. Warren Wiersbe says it this. He says, imagine that the first four commands are on one tablet. The other six are on another tablet. Because the first four commandments... According to Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, the first four commandments are commands directly related to our relationship with God, while the last six commandments are commandments related to our relationships with each other. So this is what Jesus says when he says that the entire law can be summed up in this way, love God with all that you have and with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang literally all of the law and the prophets. So Israelite society in Amos' day, there was no genuine love for God. And because there was no genuine love for God, there was no love for their fellow man. And where there is no love for God and there is no love for fellow man, how can a society continue? Because that society would be no better than its network of relationships. Now, that's Israel. 
Maybe easy for us to want to jump immediately to the application here and say, well, what about our own nation? Well, the first question we need to ask is this question. What about me and what about my involvement in my local church? Because there's a message here for the local church. The church is the people of God. Why is it that when God saved you, He formed you for family? He placed you in the context of a local church. Church is not just simply a place where you attend every once in a while to get a religious itch scratched in your life. God has saved you to make you a part of the family of faith. And the Apostle John in 1 John says that love for the brethren is one litmus test of many to determine whether or not you're truly in the faith. By this we know that we've passed from death unto life if we have love for the brethren. If I have love for my brothers and sisters in this local expression of the family of God, that's an evidence that I've passed from death unto life. It's evidence that I've genuinely been converted to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now you compare that to so many now where, where church is just seen as being optional. Well, the local church, you know, you can take it or leave it. In fact, some people come into the local church and they don't oftentimes like what they see. Sometimes they get hurt, they get wounded. And there ain't no church hurt or hurt like church hurt. Church hurt is of a worse kind. And so the easy way to respond to that sometimes is to completely withdraw and isolate yourself from people because people hurt people. So I'm going to retreat into my isolated way of living. Maybe I'll get a dog because my dog has never hurt me. See what I'm saying? Relationships, men and women, relationships are messy because we are sinners who desperately need the grace of Almighty God. And those who have experienced that grace are expected by the God who's given grace for you to express that grace in your relationships to other people. And that's why God puts you in a church. So think of the local church as being a training ground where love for God and love for your neighbor can be expressed. That's a big application, isn't it? So ask yourself this question, in what way does my love for God and love for my neighbor, how is that being expressed through my involvement in my local church? How is that being expressed? It's a very fair question to ask. So Israel, in Amos' day, they, there was no love for God, no love for their neighbors, and they're a basket of summer fruit that's ripened, and they've been picked, ripe for judgment, and they didn't know it. Notice a third thing in this text, and it's convulsion. The result of their corrupt society being handed over to the judgment of God is that there will be convulsions experienced in that society. And notice God is speaking there in verse number 7, swearing by himself, I'll never forget any of their deeds. That is, he's got to deal with their sin. And then he says, shall not the land tremble on this account? So judgment would come in a way that they would be caught off guard. It wouldn't be what they were expecting. The nation would be thrown into chaos. The land would be thrown into convulsions. And so this theme of sudden disaster 
you, you see this in this passage. Uh, songs become wailings, verse 3. Uh, the solid ground is made to tremble and be tossed, verse 8. The sun sets at noon. The earth becomes dark, verse 9. Feast being turned into mourning, verse 10. So all of this is just descriptive of a convulsive society. The land is going to be shaken as a result of God's judgment. Maybe this is reference to the earthquake that was mentioned back in chapter 1. The land would be thrown into convulsion the way that the Nile River overflowed its banks during the flood season and sinks back again. Verse 9 associates judgment with solar activity. Uh, maybe an eclipse where the day becomes as black as night. So what you have here is this picture of nature being thrown into a revolt as a consequence of man's sin. And the turmoil of nature would be a way of illustrating the turmoil of their society due to their sin. Listen to this. Their worship was in chaos, and now their world would be thrown into chaos. You know that when man gets out of step with God, nature always gets out of step with man. We we see the pattern for this in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? What was the result of Adam's sin against God? All of nature itself was subject to futility. Nature itself was thrown into this convulsive existence. Sweat now describes man's relationship with his physical environment. Natural disasters. People say, is this a sign of God's judgment? Let me tell you what natural disasters are and what they ought to be. They ought to be a reminder that we live in a world that is under judgment already. And that's been the case since Genesis 3. Because nature itself The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, nature, all of nature is groaning for the restoration that it's waiting for that will be experienced when Jesus Christ comes to set up his kingdom. So literally every ache, every pain, every disaster, every ounce of turmoil is something designed to cause man to look upward rather than inward. Upward. The ground is cursed because of Adam's sin. And so every time a hurricane devastates our coast, every time floodwaters uh, swamp the streets of our cities, every time a windswept fire devours a neighborhood, every time an earthquake shakes the ground beneath our feet, this and so much more ought to remind us that as people we are accountable to a sovereign God. We're not masters of our own fate. We're not the rulers of our own world. We're all subject to the laws of nature and nature's God. Jesus says that birth pains are going to continue with frequency until the birth takes place, until Christ comes again to establish his kingdom. So you can expect this kind of thing to continue as far as nature is concerned with frequency Until Jesus comes again. Wow. I want to ask this question. How worse, how much worse do things really have to get in our world before men and women cry out to God in repentance? I mean, really. You'd think that with the images from September the 11th fresh in our memory as a nation, 
and the horror that was being played out just a week or two ago on our social media screens, news station outlets of those big, I guess, C-130s taken off from the airport in Afghanistan, at least a couple thousand feet off the ground, and there you see people falling from those planes, so desperate to leave a war-torn country, a country in chaos, that they would try to hang on to the exterior of a plane, thinking that that would take them somewhere where they would be safe. Can you imagine living under those kind of circumstances? The fact that there are people around the world who literally are living with that kind of horror. And yet it's been 20 years since we as a nation saw citizens of our own country jumping from high-rise buildings to escape flames, making the choice that it'd be better to plummet to their own death than to perish in those flames. And people say, is that, does that mean that judgment is coming? Is judgment here? Listen to me, folks. We live in a world that is under judgment, and there is only one solution. And that solution is to find refuge, safety, and salvation in the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ. But I can't help but think that we're still looking inward for our answers rather than looking upward. So convulsions, convulsions are experienced. Now one final thing that's true of this nation under judgment here in this 8th chapter, it's a confusion that's explained. Confusion. Notice that God's judgment includes days that are coming. God says, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a mere thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. So this basket of summer fruit, it's a comparison to a society under judgment for its corruption, society that will experience convulsions as a consequence. And a final marker will be confusion then that overtakes that society as truth is lost to the society that insists upon going its own way apart from God. Alec Mateer says of this text, he says, God's judgments work out in the ordinary and the humdrum. They're not confined to great supernatural explosions of wrath at the last day, as if the Lord were merely waiting in the wings of life's drama until the curtain finally draws. He is God the creator, and therefore his judgments are seen within the operations of the human and physical nature. So when we see society ripping apart at the seams, old bonds weakening, old norms relaxing, old absolutes rejected, when we see the human person not as able to stand the strains of life and there are more breakdowns, more suicides, God is telling man collectively and individually that life apart from him is not possible. And that inherited spiritual capital drains away and left to himself, man becomes progressively unable to cope. I'll tell you what this is. You ought to write Romans 1 somewhere in the margin 
of Amos chapter 8. Because Amos chapter 8 gives us an Old Testament illustration of what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 when he describes a society that God gives over, that God gives up. And what we often don't realize is that the judgment of God in many ways, it's, it's not that society is to expect a coming judgment, but when a society chooses to go its own way apart from God, the confusion that ensues in that society is evidence of God's judgment on that society. And there's a famine for truth, and there's a famine for His Word. And God gives that society over to the results of its own sinful consequences and choices that it's made. Wow. And so all of this is so very practical. The confusion of their society would only be the result of having rejected God's word. And here's what God said he's going to do. He's going to withdraw from Amos's generation the very blessings that they had despised. The very word that was there that they had rejected, the time would come when that word would no longer be there. Can I ask you this question personally? What if God were to withdraw from your life the blessings that he's given you that you've just simply taken for granted? What if he were to withdraw the things that we tend to take for granted? I tremble at the thought. We just always assume that we're going to be able to gather together quite like, every week we can gather together like this. It's just an assumption. Would we not agree that this is a blessing that we can get together every week on the Lord's Day? We can come together to sing. We can come together to worship. We can come together to have fellowship. I didn't have to look over my shoulder wondering if there was some government official going to be following me to the meeting of God's people this morning. That's a blessing that we've enjoyed in a land that has known religious liberty. But I want to ask this question. Is that something that perhaps we've taken for granted? And what will, what will happen if that blessing is something that God withdraws? What then? Or sound biblical preaching, sound biblical teaching, access to God's Word. I counted up in my study at home yesterday as I was thinking through some of this on my shelves in my home study I counted up 78 Bibles of multiple translations they all say the same so my wife says why do you need another one you've got one just read it read it but my point is this we live in a land where there's been so much light there's been so much access but what if that were withdrawn? You look at verse 13, you look at verse 14. In particular, God says that the young maidens and the young men of society would wander about in thirst. And so the principle is, here's the point, when God hands a nation over, when confusion is true of that society. It's the youngest members of society who suffer the most. 
the youth of a nation. Men and women, can we not say that the youth of our nation are awash in confusion? A confusion that's been handed down to them by a generation of parents that hasn't really prioritized what, what matters most at home. And absolutes are questioned. The seams of society are being ripped apart. Institutions are being turned upside down. And it's the youth of the nation who are suffering for it. And yet at the same time, if there's to be any hope for that nation and hope for that society, that hope is tied up with the youth of that nation. Do you think that it's just by chance or coincidence that we've experienced such convulsions in our land of late? Our national debt, I mean, I didn't know they had that many zeros in, in numbers. And we've just assumed that there's going to be another generation that's going to be able to pay that debt. And we've just punted the football to the next generation, while at the same time, we've murdered the next generation in the womb. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that will he also reap. Let's stand for prayer this morning. I can't leave it here because, listen, that would be a picture of utter hopelessness if we left it here. But I wrote this in my margin here in Amos 8, especially there by those verses that talk about the sun being darkened, gloom with no night or light. I'll make your sun go down at noon and darken the earth at broad day. I will make it like the morning for an only sun. I wrote this in the margin of my Bible, Matthew 27. Because isn't that exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross? For our sin, as the judgment of God was poured out upon him who died in my place and in your place. At noon, the sun was dark. There was darkness all across the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour as the Lord Jesus was suffering on the cross. The only Son of God. And yet, in his sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice, my sin debt has been paid. And as a believer, I don't have to fear the judgment of God because that judgment has already been paid for. It's already been faced by the Son of God for me. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord, we're burdened this morning when we consider our society we know that here we have no continuing city because everything that man touches, Lord, man messes it up, we do. But Lord, our only hope is found in you and in the cross and in the empty tomb of Jesus. We pray for our nation this morning, Lord. I pray for those around the world who are in darkness. I pray for those in high point who are lost confused. Lord, as there's been such a confusion that's overswept our land. What is the answer? 
but the light of God's truth. The gospel that you've entrusted us with as your people. God, you send us into the world with this message of faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance. Use us, Lord, as your mouthpiece in these days. Oh God, America needs a revived church. But Lord, I have to confess it's got to begin in my heart, in my life. Here I am, Lord. Send me. In Jesus' name, amen.